Well, good morning again. We are picking up this morning once more with our preaching series on the book of Romans. If you were here with us the last time we looked at this very important letter, then you may remember that we had just begun looking at chapter 8. And in fact, we spent the entirety of our time thinking just about verse 1. And Paul's remarkable statement that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in looking at that deeply significant verse, we concentrated on the almost unbelievable truth that because of Christ's finished work on the cross on our behalf, that God's settled disposition toward we who are His people who uh, is always, even when He disciplines us, it's always one of mercy and kindness. His actions toward His people, uh, even when He corrects us, are always parental and not punitive. His purposes for us are always restorative, reparative, and transformational. Whatever is going on in our lives, whatever God is allowing to come our way, however difficult it might be, we can always say to ourselves, in the midst of all, whatever this is, whatever this is, It is not the condemnation of God. I am not under the wrath of God. I am His child whom He loves, whom He died for. And this, even this, whatever this is, is evidence of His ultimately loving and gracious and merciful intentions toward you. If you are His. And the reason that Paul so strongly emphasizes that is because in the previous chapter... Chapter 7, he went to some lengths to respond to his critics who felt that his strong emphasis on grace meant that Paul had a low or negative view of God's law. But as Paul showed in that chapter, it wasn't that he had a low view of the law. He simply had a correct view of the law. A view which saw clearly what the law could and could not do. What the law was for and what it was not for. And the thing that Paul knew only too well was that the law by itself was powerless to change people. In fact, because of our sinful natures, the law actually served as a catalyst to propel us even deeper into sin, to render us even more culpable before God than we already were. In other words, if all we had was the law and our best intentions and our best efforts at keeping the law, if all we had was that guess what? We would not become more holy, more like Jesus, more Christ-like. We would only move further and further into godlessness and self-righteousness. And the reason for that is not because the law is flawed or evil. The problem is with us. The problem is with our hearts. The problem is with remaining sin, with indwelling sin that still makes war against our very souls. In the face of such a situation, Paul cried out at the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And for those who look to the law of God as a means of making themselves right with God, Paul's words about the law would have landed pretty heavily and would have been a cause of great despair. That is, they would have been a cause of great despair if Paul had simply ended his letter at that point. But Paul didn't. 
He went on to say in the very next breath, right after declaring what a wretched man he was and would have remained, he gives thanks to God for delivering him from his wretched situation in and through his son Jesus Christ. And from there he launches into chapter 8 with this bold declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And upon that foundational declaration of no condemnation, which is at the end of the day is simply a restatement of the truth of our justification. But Paul is going to take that foundation and build upon it the accompanying truth or reality of our sanctification. That is, the fact of our being indwelled by the Spirit of God and the consequences that necessarily will flow from that truth into the lives of all of God's people. He's going to talk about the things that the Spirit does for and within and through God's people, including the very important thing of bringing, the law, uh, bringing about within a believer's life the sort of heart and behavior change that the law of God describes really well, but which, as we've already seen, is absolutely powerless to produce in and of itself. And the beautiful thing is the law is not all that we have. He didn't just give us the law and then come along and save us in Jesus and stop there. He gave us something else, someone else. We have the very Spirit of God. As Romans 8 will make abundantly clear. And because because of that, because we have the Spirit of God working within us and through us, we can know, we can experience, and we can feel. And I I know we're Presbyterians, we're not supposed to feel things, but we really can And we really should feel the glorious truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we should and can and will experience the outworking of that reality in our hearts and desires and lives as the Spirit plays that truth out in and through us. And that strong note sounded at the very beginning of chapter 8 is only going to be built upon and then ultimately surpassed by the even stronger note sounded at the end of chapter 8, where Paul gives no less than 15 consecutive assurances that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so as one writer notes, the opening declaration of no condemnation from the wrath of God will be concluded with the strong assurance of no separation from the love of God. In the same chapter. That's Romans 8 in a nutshell. We're nowhere near any of that yet. And in fact, we just got out of the gates in verse 1. And I'd love to say we're going to make huge progress this morning. But actually, I think we're just going to get to verse 2. But cheer up. I feel confident that we will get through chapter 8 at least by January of next year. I'm only halfway kidding. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us and for the great assurance that there truly is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us now as we look further into that truth and build upon it with a view, as always, to knowing you better, to loving you more deeply and serving you more faithfully as a result. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's listen again to Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, to give us a little bit of context. These words are absolutely perfect. 
Everything else I've said before and afterward is flawed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, in extending our understanding of this passage, what I'm hoping to do is this. I firstly want to ask and answer the question, to whom does this declaration of no condemnation apply, according to what Paul's written here and elsewhere in Romans? Secondly, I want to look at what verse 2 is saying, that is, what this verse means all by itself, what it's adding to the discussion. And thirdly, I want to ask what the connection is between verse 2 and verse 1, and in the course of talking about that, uh, hopefully clarify why this verse is and can be so helpful for us. Firstly, we need to ask the question, to whom does this declaration of no condemnation apply? And the first response to that is to look at the end of the verse and say that it applies to all those who are in Christ Jesus, which is all well and good, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Who are these people who are said to be in Christ Jesus? Well, one place to start in thinking about that is to note what this verse is not saying. Notice that Paul doesn't say, there is therefore no condemnation for anyone. Paul doesn't make a blanket universal statement like that. If Paul had wanted to say that, he could have. There are other words and phrases he could have and certainly might have used if that was his intent. But Paul didn't use any of those words or phrases. He didn't say there's therefore no condemnation for anyone. He said there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever else you might say about these words, at the bare minimum, one conclusion you must come to is that Paul is clearly referring to a subset of humanity. This is not all-inclusive language. This is exclusive language. So again, who's Paul talking about? And one answer is to say he's talking about the same people he was talking about earlier in this letter when we looked at Romans 5, 12 to 21, those for whom Christ served as their representative head. Maybe you remember that. As Romans 5, 19 said, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about the same people described in Romans 6, 5 to 6. Those who are in union with Christ so that his death is their death. Maybe you remember this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about the people described in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we'll have a closer look at that fairly soon. But it reads this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about the people described in Romans 9, 21 to 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now again, we're going to have much more to say about those verses when we get to them. But those who are in Christ Jesus are those whom God the Father from all eternity determined to save, to know, to call, to justify, to glorify. Those who are united spiritually to the Lord Jesus whom He represented and are thus deemed to be in Him. Vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And on top of all of that, they are also those who respond to the inward calling of God by His Spirit with a heart cry and a call of their own. As Romans 10, 11 to 13 says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the glorious truth of no condemnation is reserved for all who are in Christ Jesus in all the ways just described. And the question is, okay, what do we do with that truth? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great. What do you do with that truth? Here's what you do. You tell people. You tell people. This isn't a truth that you just chew on or reflect upon and keep to yourself. It's a compelling truth. As Romans 10.14, a little further on, says, How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? What's Paul saying? And I know I'm getting way ahead of myself here. But I just don't want to throw this truth out there without you seeing that what Paul expected his readers to do with this truth was to tell people. When Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he doesn't see that as a nice, uh, tame, theological truth that we simply turn into a cross stitch and we put it into a picture frame and we hang it on a wall where we can look at it from time to time and take great comfort in this thing as we sit back in our lazy bull recliners and watch the unfolding sovereignty of God reality show. That's why, among other reasons, Paul follows Romans 9 with Romans 10. He doesn't just want us to leave leave his readers with this dry, sobering theological truth of the sovereignty of God in election and salvation. I mean, and we haven't even seen this yet, but let me tell you, when we get to Romans 9 and we look at that, and what he's saying there, and uh, and Romans 9, it, it takes the sovereignty of God and it puts it as plainly and as brutally as it can be put in that chapter. And he follows that up, though, this that sobering and even, dare I say it, uh, difficult theological reality with a clear 
call to evangelism, to preaching, to teaching, to telling and sharing the truth of the gospel to anyone who has a pulse in chapter 10. So yes, it is a great and awesome truth. And we should take comfort in the sovereignty of God in saving His people. And no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we should also be discomforted by that truth. We should be moved and motivated and compelled and even convicted by that truth as God's appointed agents and ambassadors who by His sovereignty and mercy, we are the channels, the conduit, the means by which His grace gets effectively worked out and spoken out into the world in space and time, in the lives of men and women all around us. So it is a comforting truth, absolutely, but it is also a compelling truth truth there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who are the ones that are in Christ Jesus Romans says a lot about it but ultimately chapter 10 says we'll recognize him because they'll be the ones that respond to the call of the gospel that's how you'll know well how's that going to happen well they need a preacher need somebody to tell them about it and whose job is that That's yours. That is your job. And if we don't say it, it won't get said. Right on the heels of this comforting, compelling truth of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus comes another very significant truth found in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, in this verse, Paul's contrasting two things. One thing that he calls uh, the law of sin and death, and the other that he refers to as the law of the spirit of life. Paul says that those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying here, that are and, and therefore under no condemnation, those people were formerly in bondage to the law of sin and death, but they've been set free, and now are under the law of the spirit of life. But what exactly is Paul talking about there? If you recall from our look at Romans 7, 1 to 7, not that long ago, but one of the main points that Paul made in that section was to say that before Christ, apart from Christ, we were in bondage to the law. And the reason we're in bondage to it is because it created a moral obligation for us by showing us where we fall short. The problem is that while the law did a great job of showing us where we fall short, it was and is no help whatsoever in helping us to address that problem. All it does is highlight our sin and increase our culpability before God. It was great as showing us uh, and showing us our lack of holiness. It is hopeless in making us holy in and of itself. But then Christ came, he took on flesh, he lived a perfectly righteous life, he then died a death for sins he did not commit, and all those who were in him were delivered by that death from the law. Romans 7 4 to 6 puts that very plainly. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve 
in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The things that Paul briefly stated there in Romans 7, uh, that, that thing is what is now being more fully developed in Romans 8. And so essentially what Paul is getting at here in verse 2 is this. Paul is saying that the law that previously ruled over us and resulted in our justly deserving condemnation and death, that law, that situation, that power over us is no more. We have been delivered from that. But the result of that is not that we are now a law unto ourselves. We're not now free agents, but instead we are ruled by and led by and indwelled by and empowered by the Spirit of life. That is, the Holy Spirit of God. That is what the phrase, the law of the Spirit of life is referring to. Living under the authority and power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Who brings us, that Spirit actually brings us into conformity, into the very same righteousness that's codified in the law. Just the law couldn't produce it. But the Spirit brings us into that. In other words, all that the law was to us is contained in and applied to us and embodied within us by the work of the indwelling Spirit. Which means, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you do, and indeed you must have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You are Spirit-filled. Indeed, every Christian is a Spirit-filled Christian, or he or she is not a Christian. There is no other kind and being indwelt by the Spirit is not a second or subsequent experience for Christians. It's not a second blessing that one receives sometime after being converted. The Spirit of God is and must be right there from the very beginning of one's life as a Christian as the common possession of all of God's people. Because it is that Spirit's work that makes evident the truth that God has forgiven and saved and justified His people. And so verse 2 is saying that the situation whereby we are being led and indwelled by the Spirit of God, that reality has taken the place of and set us free from the former reality of living in bondage to the law of sin and death. The law that could not lead to life, but which would on its own only lead to further sin and death. And so with the very little time I have left, I want to ask the question then, what is the relationship then between that second verse and the first verse? And in the course of doing that, I want to come to a couple of conclusions as to why any of this matters. And the easiest way to get at the relationship between these two verses is to look at the little connecting word that ties them together. The connecting word is for. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That little word for uh, has a synonym, which is because. You could also say because, so that the verse could read, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Putting it that way helps a little, but then you have to make a decision since because can be taken at least two ways. One writer explains it like this. He says, we say things like this. We say, I'm hungry because my stomach is growling. And we say, I'm hungry because I didn't have any breakfast. The growling stomach is evidence that I'm hungry, 
not the basis or cause of my hunger. But not having breakfast is the basis and cause of my hunger. We use the word for or because in both of those senses. And so do the biblical writers. It seems to me that the way we're meant to understand uh, verse 2 is to see that it is the evidence of the truth that is declared in verse 1. So Paul is saying that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and the fact that they've been set free from the law of sin and death and are now under the authority and power of the indwelling spirit is evidence of that truth. He certainly cannot be saying that their being led by the spirit is the ground or cause of their not being condemned. That would turn their being led by the spirit into a kind of work that saves them, which goes against everything Paul's been saying in this letter. So God's delivering us from wrath and condemnation because of Jesus is the reason or the cause for having been given the Spirit, not the other way around. And the working of that Spirit of life sets us free and provides evidence of God's salvation. Because what God does in for us in justifying us, making us right with Him, that's invisible But the work of the Spirit makes that invisible truth visible to ourselves and to the world. That's the connection. But how does this help? Why does it matter? Um, Just three things quickly on that. It matters because it says that in forgiving us and saving us, God has not only given us pardon. He's given us power. So that we're not only delivered from the penalty of our sin, but also eventually from the practice and the presence of sin. The point of your justification is your sanctification. God didn't just send Jesus so that you could merely be forgiven and yet remain unchanged. He sent Jesus to die and the Spirit to live within you so that you would one day be like Jesus. So that the image of God would be fully restored in you. Not just so that you could say, I'm forgiven. So we can rejoice that there is no condemnation, absolutely. And we can further rejoice that there is an ongoing renovation. That God has not only forgiven our sin, that He is eradicating our sinfulness. He's doing it by His Spirit because that is the only way to bring about the righteousness that the law embodies and calls for, but it cannot produce it. Secondly, it matters because it puts things in the right order. First things first. The starting point for your Christian life is always the gospel. The truth of what God has done to bring you into a right relationship with Himself and to deliver you from wrath and condemnation. You always have to start with the knowledge of God's love and His mercy towards you. Of His choosing to set His love upon you and to forgive you and to make you His adopted child. That secure assurance and knowledge has to be the ground. It has to be the ground of all of our responding and doing. If it isn't, if we get things mixed up and turned around, then our whole life becomes this sort of massive works project trying to earn or achieve the pleasure and approval of God. And then the fear of not gaining that approval drives us into our shell and it keeps us actually from dealing fully and honestly with our sin in our hearts 
And then God the Father becomes a hard, harsh taskmaster when we see him as the elder brother saw him in Luke 15. And because the emphasis is on us and our performance, we steal glory and honor for ourselves that rightfully and completely belongs to God. And then we become proud and self-righteous instead of humble and grateful. In short, all kinds of bad things happen when we mix up the order of these truths. You've got to start with the mercy and kindness of God and the no condemnation that we have because of the Lord Jesus and then move outward from there. You mix that up, you're in for a world of trouble. Finally, it matters because, as one writer puts it, we don't go through life like someone who is waiting for the jury to arrive at a verdict. We don't go through life like someone who's uh, fearful and afraid and thinking that at any moment the bad news is going to be delivered. It matters because uh, it means we can have confidence that we can move through our days, not with self-confidence, but with confidence in God. And it means that we can actually tackle our hearts and our sin in all its ugliness with a renewable zeal and energy because we already know where this whole thing is going. We already know that God has won and secured the victory. And when you are tired and you are weary and you are at the end of your rope, just knowing that, just being assured of that, can make all the difference in the world. The verdict has already been delivered. And we can live confidently on the basis of that. Let's pray. Father, please help us to take the things that you show us in your word, in this letter in particular, Father. Things that, um, that sometimes are easy to grasp and they're right there on the surface. And sometimes, Father, they're, they're in kind of deep and you've got to dig in. and You've got to look at them and think and wrestle. And um, the, this letter contains a lot of what... Uh, Peter referred to as some of those harder things that Paul said sometimes, and that's certainly to be found here in Romans. But Father, help us to um, to be willing to uh, listen hard, to think long, to reflect upon these truths, uh, to see where they're taking us, to see what you would have us do with them, uh, to live them out, Father. I pray, Father, that you would work these th- things out and you would do so by your Spirit's work within us, that you would bring about um, the growth and the change and the newness of life that only you can do and only your Spirit can do from the inside out. We thank you for the knowledge that you're doing that. We thank you in advance for the assurance that you've already given us that you will complete that project uh, and help us to cling to that in our daily battles and struggles with sin and holiness. Help us to keep an eye to the horizon, uh, to the future, and to the truth that there is no condemnation. And allow that truth, Father, to, to pull us through uh, the challenge and the muck and the mire sometimes of the present and of our own hearts. 
and uh, see us through, Father, to the other side. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or various ministries and missionaries that this church supports.